Thanks, Dennis and Melissa. Beautiful. At this point, the, uh, the kids are dismissed uh, to go in the back uh, for the children's program. Uh, if you're not dismissed, then I'd encourage you to turn uh, to the book of Genesis. We're going to read uh, in chapter one. We're going to read at the very beginning and uh, introduce a new series this morning. Uh, this past Friday, uh, Beck and I celebrated our uh, 16th anniversary, and uh, we uh, we're able to steal a few moments together to celebrate that anniversary. And uh, anytime anniversaries come along, you think about that original day. And uh, I, I, this wouldn't come as any surprise to my wife at all. As I think back to our wedding, I don't remember very much of it. Uh, so much of it was a whirlwind. There was so much going on. Uh, it's hard to really remember a, a lot of what happened. Um, nor did I probably realize the full significance of everything uh, that was happening at my wedding day as well. Of course, Beck and I had been to a bunch of weddings before. Uh, we'd gone through premarital counseling and were told about how significant that day was. But we were so young. Looking back at those pictures, we looked just so young and probably didn't recognize uh, what uh, significance that wedding day held for us. Because weddings are significant. They're perhaps... Um, uh, one of the most significant uh, of life's events. And I think a Christian wedding is uh, especially significant as well, a, a wedding between two Christians. Um, and part of that is because not only do we make vows uh, to one another, um, vows to the death till death do us part, um, but at a Christian wedding, those vows are made before God. God is, is called as our witness, and God, as it were, is even overseeing uh, this wedding celebration, uh, just like he oversaw uh, the first wedding between Adam and Eve. He is there to witness that union. And so that's why sometimes if you go to a Christian wedding, you'll see that it's called uh, the covenant of marriage. Uh, it's not just a, a ceremony, it's not just a servant, but it is a covenant between a man and a woman before God as their witness. Now, our culture doesn't use that word covenant uh, a whole lot, but if you look at the scriptures, you'll discover that that word covenant is actually all throughout the scriptures. It's an incredibly uh, scriptural term, and it's used all throughout the Bible to describe the terms of God's relationship with his people. It's how God defines that relationship with his chosen ones, with his people. And what we discover all throughout the scriptures is that God enters into covenants with us. He enters into a relationship and those are defined by that word covenant. And so what I'd like to do this summer, and this is somewhat ambitious, I realize that, what I'd like to do this summer is just trace the thread of that covenant idea all throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, but to kind of follow that thread and to pull on it as we look at the scriptures and what this idea of covenant is all about. And so what I'd like to do this morning is start at the very beginning and look at what theologians call uh, the covenant of creation. So I'm going to be reading uh, from Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 32, and then I'm just going to skip ahead and read a couple of verses uh, in Genesis chapter 2. This is God's word. Uh, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And now at Genesis chapter 2, verses uh, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks that uh, you promise us that as we read your scripture and as we meditate on it, uh, your spirit speaks to our soul. Uh, Your spirit shapes us more into your image. And so we pray that your spirit would visit us, making these words come alive in our hearts. Help us to see not only the true nature of our own souls, but help us to see the wonders and the miracle of your grace that is with us every step. So be with us now as we meditate on your words. In Christ's name that we pray, amen. Uh, There's a lot of fun things that I get to do uh, as a pastor of a church, but one of my uh, absolute favorite things to do at City Church uh, is to to lead the communicants class. And if you don't know what a a communicants class is, is it's a class that's designed for either later elementary school uh, kids or early middle school kids. And uh, it's a four-week session, and we meet with them, and at the end, they have an opportunity uh, to become full-fledged members of our church. And uh, it is hands down one of my favorite things to do. Uh, The kids are always very eager. uh, They're always very receptive. But what I love about it is the kids ask the best questions, right? They ask the absolute best questions and really important and really profound questions, Without any sort of embarrassment, they'll ask things like, well, how did we people, how did humanity, how did we get here? Or uh, why are we here? Uh, Why did God make us? What is our purpose? Or uh, what is the calling that God places on each and every one of us? I kid you not, they ask these questions and we have great uh, conversations that come after that. Unfortunately, somewhere along the way, uh, as we grow up, we really stop asking those questions for some reason. I don't know if it's because um, uh, we lose that childlike curiosity or uh, perhaps we feel too mature uh, to ask questions like that or perhaps we feel we should know the answers to it, but because we don't, uh, we stop asking the questions. But those questions are fundamental. Uh, They're important for us to really have answers to. As many of you know, I teach at a local university. I teach religious studies. And and what I tell my students is, is, uh, I'm going to make you ask these questions, right? You may not want to ask those questions, but but I'm going to force you to ask them. And uh, so many of them come up to me afterwards saying, thank you for, for confronting us with those questions because we've never actually really thought about it before. 
You know, I think we live in a very busy and very distracted age. We have more information than we've ever had, and yet we often ignore the questions that matter the most. It's as if we just stick our heads in the sand or put our heads down and we plow on, never really thinking about the big questions that life presents to us each day. Well, the first couple chapters of Genesis provide some answers to some of those ultimate questions. This covenant of creation uh, that is revealed in this passage here helps us to see how we got here, why we are here, and what is expected of us from God. It reminds us that we're not here by some random or blindless uh, evolutionary process. It reminds us that we're not here because of some afterthought of the gods, that we were somehow accidentally created uh, to serve them or for their amusement. That's what was the, the common belief in the ancient world. But what this passage reminds us is that we were intentionally created and designed by a personal God who desires to be in relationship with his creation. And that relationship is defined by this covenant of creation. And it tells us who created us, it tells us why we're created, and it tells us what is required of us. So first, let's look at who created us, and we see that from the very beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so it reminds us that God is the author of creation. The created world and the crowning jewel of that creation, Adam and Eve, all these things were spoken into existence by God out of nothing. They were spoken into existence by the sheer power of God's word. So just imagine that for a second. No pre-existing material. God simply spoke it and it happened. It flourished into existence. And I don't have to tell you that the whole of God's created world is miraculous. It's on display for us all around us every single day. And there is beauty, there is order, there is intelligence that is behind all of it. We see it in the beauty of a sunset that happens each day. We see it in the rush of waters in the rivers that are all around us. We see it in the majesty of the mountains that are all around us as well. All of it reveals to us the majesty of our creator. But what we learn from this passage is that Adam and Eve were unique amongst all of God's creation because they alone were created in the image of God. And what that means is that the fingerprints of God's created order are in some ways manifest more intricately and more beautifully in mankind than in any other element of God's creation. Augustine said this, he said, men go abroad to admire the height of mountains, the mighty waves of the sea, and yet they pass over the majesty of themselves without any sort of thought. Genesis 2 says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You see, what we miss is that Genesis gives us an extremely personal account about this creation of man. The word of God, yes, indeed, spoke man into existence, 
But what it says here is unique, that the breath of God, literally forced into the nostrils of man, brought life to mankind. It's different than any other element of God's creation. Man was created unique and with a unique and inherent dignity because of how different we really are amongst all of God's creation. And what that means is this, is that the image of God is in each and every one of us, and there's dignity in each and every one of us. So you can imagine the most reprehensible person you know in your life and realize that the dignity of God is even in that person as well. The beggar on the street, the immigrant, the criminal serving a life sentence, that person from whatever different race or ethnicity or political persuasion, all people are products of God, the great artist and the great creator. But what is even more remarkable about all of this is that God doesn't just make mankind unique, but he decides to enter into a unique relationship with man as well. And this covenant of creation is the terms of God's relationship with man. Reminds us we're not random, we're not formed by accident, that there was intentionality and purpose to our creation. We were created by God and we were created to be in a relationship with a God who is and was fundamentally relational. We were made to be in relationship with him. And so it tells us who created us, but it also reveals not just who created us, but why we were created. Look at Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so what you see here is really three things, that that mankind was created to have dominion or to rule, where we were created to work, and then finally we were created to enjoy all of it. And so we were created to have dominion and to rule. We are given a certain measure of authority that is borrowed to us from the ultimate authority of God. And of course, the sign of that authority is is Adam and Eve's unique job, which was given to them to name all the animals. That might seem kind of insignificant to us, uh, uh, but in the ancient world, to name something means that you had a certain measure of authority over it. So Adam and Eve get to name all the creatures and rule over them. But you have to take note that this rule was about stewardship. They were given God's creation to enjoy and to be stewards of. This isn't exploitation. Uh, The created order wasn't given just as a resource to them, but it was a resource for them to uh, to be stewards of, not just to exploit through and through. So mankind's given dominion and rule. Uh, Secondly, you see, mankind is given responsibility, the responsibility to work with the created order. 2.15 says this, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So humanity was to work for six days and they were were to be like God. They were to rest on that seventh day. And what you see here is that this call, uh, really coupled with the institution of marriage, is a call for Adam and Eve to work and to build culture. 
They are to build all the elements that come with culture, things like education, the arts, language, architecture, uh, things like construction and uh, civilization. They're to build communities and neighborhoods. These were all the elements of culture that were to be constructed by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And God even gives them the, the kind of creativity and mind to build this culture. And so many people have called this the cultural mandate, to form a culture, but not just any old culture, uh, to form a culture that glorifies God in every single aspect, to glorify Him in all things. I think some people uh, mistakenly think that, the, that work and this call to work is simply a product of uh, man's sin or the fall that comes in Genesis chapter 3. But what we see here is that, no, that we were designed to work. And that happened before the curse. It happened before the fall. There's something in our um, uh, God-ordained engineering that makes us desire work and makes us uh, designed to work. And so I want you to think about it this way. We all have jobs. We all engage in work from time to time. Have you ever had a moment in your work where it seemed like everything just worked out, right? Uh, maybe it was, certainly it was a very brief moment uh, when this happened, but everything kind of fell into place exactly the way it was supposed to at work. Uh, there was no resistance. It came very easily. And you left that day of work not only feeling personally satisfied and fulfilled, but also as if, um, uh, as if God designed you exactly to do the very thing that you are doing. Now, let me stress that these moments are incredibly brief, right? Maybe you can count on one finger the times that you felt that in your work. But as you look at Adam and Eve, you see them working and feeling that way all the time, in feeling that they were perfectly designed to do the very thing God was engaging them to do. They were perfectly satisfied. They were perfectly engaged in the very thing that God was calling them to do. And so because of that, there was all sorts of enjoyment, of enjoying every element of their work all of the time. So you see dominion, work, all of it bringing about a perfect enjoyment. They were in a perfect relationship with the creation that was around them. It was there to bless them and they fully enjoyed it. They had a perfect relationship with their calling. They were doing exactly what they were designed to do. And they had a perfect marriage. Imagine that, a perfect marriage, a perfect relationship with each other. And to cap it all, they had a perfect relationship with God, their creator. And for them, it must have translated into a supreme bliss and a supreme enjoyment. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but that word Eden, that the, is the name of the garden they were placed in, that word itself means bliss and enjoyment. And so what you see here is a relational God entered into a covenant relationship with Adam and Eve, giving them gifts of work and purpose and enjoyment in a blissful environment. The creator was perfectly blessing his creation and the creation was perfectly enjoying the good gifts given to them by a creator. All of it through God's fixed, sovereign and gracious initiative. 
But there's one thing left in this covenant of creation. We, of course, have seen man's uh, broad responsibilities and that cultural mandate, but also we see that man had one specific responsibility as well, and it helps us to see what we are required to do. Chapter 2, verse 16 says this, and the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we don't know a whole lot of the specifics of all this. Uh, Of course, none of us was in the Garden of Eden. All we have to go on is what is presented to us. Um, But we do know that there was a tree there called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we do know to some degree that this tree was placed there as a test uh, for Adam and Eve, our first parents. And I think we can sometimes get lost in the details, but I think the operative principle is the word of God itself. Because the word of God had spoken them into existence, but also God's word had just one specific prohibition for Adam and Eve. I think sometimes we focus on the prohibition and we miss all the permission. And really, Adam and Eve had the permission to do anything else They just had one prohibition related to this specific tree. And I have to think that uh, the particular fruit of that tree or the particular makeup of that tree or even the details of that tree really have no particular relevance to the discussion whatsoever. I I think this is what essentially it was all about. The tree for them was a physical reminder that they were not God and that they were to live under a higher authority. They existed under a higher authority. It came down to this. Would they submit and obey the word of God and the authority of God that was represented by that tree? Would their lives be defined by a radical obedience to God or would they instead choose a rebellious disobedience to God's plan and God's design. Really, that question is no different than what you and I are presented with every single day. Because the essence of this thing called sin that we'll talk about is, the essence of it is really usurping the authority of God in our lives. It's it's trying to be our own God rather than submit to the authority and the word of God in our lives. And so, do we live by God's design for our lives, or are we convinced that our own personal design for our lives is somehow better? Of course, we know from the scriptures what Adam and Eve decided. We know the path that they chose. Rather than submit to the word and the will and the design of God, they chose to rebel. Rather than living submissive to their creator who had blessed them, mankind wanted to be their own authority. The creation rebelled against the creator in an attempt to usurp his authority. And so Adam rebels, and the consequences of his rebellion are far-reaching. It plunged all of us, all of humanity, into sin. From that point on, all of Adam and Eve's children 
would be born inherently rebellious to their God who designed them to be recipients of his blessing. It is in our sinful makeup as Adam and Eve's children to rebel against God, to attempt to be our own God. And so what we see is that Adam and Eve rebelled against this first covenant. They rebelled against that covenant relationship and you and I perpetuated every single day. We all have rebelled against this covenant of creation. We've broken the relationship that once was perfect. And so that really is the story of the beginning of mankind. It answers lots of questions for us. But fortunately, there's another story that happens in the scriptures, and that is the story of the gospel. And what the story of the gospel tells us is this, is that you and I, all of us, we need a second Adam. The first Adam He did a good job at really screwing everything up. And so what we need is we need another. We need another Adam. And what the gospel tells us is that Jesus becomes our second Adam. And as we look at his life, as we look at his ministry, as we looked at the miracles that he performed, we see that when our second Adam, Jesus, was faced with temptation, Instead of rebelling against the word of God, instead he held on tightly to it. He submitted to the word in the authority of God the Father in his life. You see, Adam and Eve, they failed in the Garden of Eden. But by the end of Jesus' life, what do we see? We see a second Adam who also is facing temptation in a garden. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying to God the Father. And what did he say? He said, if there's a way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But at the end, not my will, but yours be done. Perfect obedience in this second Adam. Perfect submission in this second Adam. And so what Jesus does by following and submitting to the will of the Father, what Jesus does is he did the very thing the first Adam failed to do. And in so doing, he provides redemption for you and for me. You see, friends, ultimately we were created to be in relationship. We were created for relationship, not just with each other. Ultimately, we were created to be in relationship with God. The first Adam managed to disrupt that relationship and we perpetuate his same error every single day. But that is why Jesus came. He came to restore the relationship that was broken. He came to make it possible for us to return to living the way that God intended us to live. And that, friends, is great news. Let's pray.